you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. So he came to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. Thank you, Ray. You know, keep hold of that. Good morning, City on a Hill. How are we doing? Good. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, if you are new or visiting, let me add my welcome to Luke's. Thanks for, for joining us and being with us. My name's Nick. Get the joy of being the pastor of this church. And uh, as Luke said, today we continue this series, The Seven Signs of Jesus. Uh, as an evidence of God's grace, Jesus still does the miraculous in our world today. We won trivia last night. Thank you. Thank you very much. But that will be the last week we say about that. Uh, we're going to dive into the passage that Ray just read out for us. Uh, It is an eyewitness account uh, of Jesus' life. The whole book of John is. uh, And so good to have it open uh, before you, or if you don't have it, turn your eyes to the screens. Uh, We can never pray too much. I'm going to add my own prayers uh, to Luke's. Uh, Let me pray. Lord, help. We pray that you would come and show us Jesus through these signs. Uh, Help us not uh, stop at the sign, but as they point us to you, help us see what this story says. Uh, So make Jesus as big and as beautiful as you really are to us today. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, as we pick up this now, the second sign in the series of of seven signs, uh, it's good to remember, and and I'll try to come back to this in in multiple weeks of this series, what is the the goal? What is the idea? What is a sign for? Uh, We live in a sign-saturated world there's street signs, there's marketing billboards, there's, there's all these pointers uh, to a place for us. Uh, perhaps you've seen the Instagram account, Dude With Sign. Uh, it was a, a viral marketing campaign for a media company that took on a life of its own, especially during COVID, uh, where a guy named Seth Phillips stands expressionless wearing sunnies, holding up uh, a protest sign, and the sign has uh, something written on it, uh, usually an observation about modern life, Uh, It all started in 2019 when he stood on a sign in Brooklyn in New York and held up, stop replying all to company-wide emails. (laughs) So many people resonated with that one in particular that there is now 7.9 million Instagram followers uh, and some of the best examples that I personally resonated with 
It's not self-checkout if I need help every time. <laughs> anybody, anybody. How are they getting milk out of nuts? <laughs> almond milk. Where is almond milk coming from? Who knows? That meeting could have been an email. <laughs> amen, amen. And finally, stop talking on speakerphone in public. <laughs> He's talking to some of you. Stop talking on speakerphone. Anyway, you get the idea. What are, what are these signs in this case? What are they about? They're about announcing something, some, some truism, some, some relevant slogan into the world, some experience. Well, it is significant for us that, that John, the author of, of this book that we're looking at, this, this eyewitness testimony, that he, he has chosen, of, of a few words that he could have used, he's chosen to use the word sign as it relates to these supernatural activities that come into the world at the hands of Jesus. He could have said, as, as other eyewitnesses do of the same events, called them miracles, he could have called them mighty works, but John chose to use the word sign about these things. And he did that because what we're looking at today, what we looked at last week, what we'll look at in the weeks to come, aren't just these spontaneous displays of power where Jesus was just randomly hulking up to kind of just divinely flex his muscles to show how good he was or what separates him from, from the rest. No, they're signs because they're announcing something. Jesus holding up a message about his identity, about, about who he is, about, in this case, deeper realities of what he's come to do. And so our job, my job as we approach these, these signs, is to try to read through the events that took place into what is written on the cardboard that Jesus is holding up uh, through this sign. And so today we're going to do that again, have another opportunity to discover who Jesus is. I mentioned at the top last week, I said I'd do it again this week, at the end of the eyewitness testimony, in John 20, he tells us why he gave us these signs. He says, Jesus did many other signs which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is why we're here. If you're not a Christian, one of the authors of the Bible there, John, the, the author of the book of John, is being very upfront with you. He wants you to read this story that we're going to look at and consider and contemplate, hey, Jesus might actually be the Son of God based on reading this. Jesus might actually have an offer for you, life in His name. If you are a Christian, it's worth pondering again and reconsidering what this sign is saying to you, that you can continue on living in light of Jesus, His sonship, His being the, his being the Son of God and can keep continuing in the life that He offers. So there is something in these signs for all of us. Uh, today we're going to look at this story, the, the healing of the official Son as it's known. So come with me to John 4, 46. We're going to walk through the text uh, and unpack it and then after we've uh, Walk, uh, talk, walk through the story, we're going to look at what is, the, what is the sign saying? What is the big idea? So John 4, 46 starts out this way. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. So last week we looked at a, a wedding where Jesus was a, a guest with some of his disciples and he turned the water in the purification jars into wine. For us, that was last week. For Readers of this book, it was two chapters ago. So there has been a lot of uh, water under the bridge since then. Jesus has gone to a temple and he has 
flushed out the, the kind of deceptive, manipulative leaders there in that temple and rebuked them for turning the temple into a marketplace. Jesus has had a conversation with a religious leader, one of the religious elites who's seemingly soft-hearted to the things of Jesus, and he's told him, you must be born again. Jesus has gone out into the, the, the place that no Jew was meant to go, into Samaria, and dwelt with the, the Samaritans for a time, and he did so uh, by being at a well, and he talked to a woman at the well who was there at a time that tells us that she had been socially isolated and shamed for her life, and yet Jesus engaged with her and offered her water that will never run dry. And so last week pointed to the reality that Jesus has ushered in this, this new age of life, of, of blessing, of, of celebration, where you and I, in Him, can receive fullness of joy through forgiveness of sins. And since then, Jesus has gone around Israel, telling all sorts of people, the religious and the irreligious, that that's exactly why He's here. And now He's back where it started. He's back in Cana, which is in Galilee. Galilee is in northwest Israel. It's just eight kilometers from where Jesus grew up, just eight kilometers from Nazareth. In Cana, one of His disciples was from there, uh, Mary, his mother, likely had family there. And so he's back close to where he grew up and to a region, a population that will have known this Jesus of Nazareth quite well. And that's worth considering, worth knowing, because the way John sets this story up is he wants to uh, offset, he wants to add context to this miracle, this sign, uh, by what comes before it. He's just been in Samaria and now he is coming home. I don't know if you have the experience when you, when you come home, but you know, when, you, when you grow up into adulthood, there is a sense in which home, that, that feeling of home remains wherever your parents were or wherever your, your, you grew up. And so for me, uh, whenever I go with the family to visit my parents in Doncaster, it's just 15 minutes away, you know, it feels like it is a coming home time. And, and what happens to me, I don't know if you experience this, but, but I kind of revert to the age that I was when I used to be at home. Uh, because you come home, and in my uh, household, uh, you, know, you know, my mum was the MVP of our household. She, she, she did it all, and then she cleaned up, having done it all uh, for all of us. And so what happens when I come home, it's like going back into puberty without the pimples. You kind of, you, you, you step into home and you revert to, hey, there's my groove on the couch. I'm going to sit on that couch. I'm going to turn on the TV, and my mum's going to continue to be the MVP for me, and she's going to continue to do those things. You have come home. There's a familiarity there, and you take that familiarity. It, it, it makes you take home for granted. Well, in the case of Jesus, it wasn't him, but everyone around him, when Jesus got close to home here in this case, everyone around him seemed so familiar with this Jesus of Nazareth that they would take him for granted. This was the Jesus that they'd gone to school with. This is the Jesus that they would have played sports with and wrestled with. This is the Jesus they'd been to parties to, celebrated birthdays with, celebrated the Passover with. They took Jesus for granted. So in the lead up to the detail of the sign, uh, we need to see that, that John wants us to know that because he puts this story straight after Jesus being with strangers. He's been with the Samaritans. He's been with foreigners, Foreigners to him personally, but foreigners to the whole state of, of, of the Jews, the, the religious system of the Jews. The Samaritans were heretics. They were uh, people who had compromised their faith. And so it's worth just looking at the, the little story just before what we are now to help us understand where we are going to go. 
where John tells about Jesus meeting the woman at the well. And Jesus treated her so counterculturally, so profoundly did he speak into her life that she ran back to her hometown to tell them all that Jesus ever said to her. And we're told this in John, 4, John chapter 4, verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said we believe, for we have heard it ourselves. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So we have the Samaritans, strangers to Jesus, historically hated people by the Jews who had compromised their faith. They merely hear the word of Jesus. They hear the message of Jesus and they leap happily into belief into trust, into celebration that this is the Savior of the world. But here we have Jesus coming home to a people who are so familiar with Him, who are taking Him for granted, and apparently they need more than just to hear. They need to see it. And it's this familiarity with Jesus that that we need to have in our minds as we read on in the story, as we see how Jesus responds in this situation. Let's keep that in mind as we keep going, but Uh, Let me read it again. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus' reputation that he had turned the water into wine has obviously spread. The The whole region now seems to know that there is this Jesus of Nazareth who can do such things. Capernaum is some 30 kilometers away from Cana. You can, you can pull out Google Maps. Don't do it now, but you, you can check this on Google Maps. The places are still there. It's an eight-hour walk from Capernaum uphill to Cana. And this official, probably a, a royal official, probably working for the, the king at the time, Herod Antipas, he's in a, he's in a desperate situation. We should, we should recognize the desperation that this man is in. His, his father's heart for his son is yearning for him to be well. His son is at the point of death. And he's at that kind of desperation where you would just do anything to help your child. Any conceivable fix. And so we can assume whoever is a, is a medical expert has come in and tried their hand at this. Whatever medicine, doctors, he's got, this guy's got access to, to those in power in society. Whatever connection they have, do you know somebody who could come and help my son? But he's heard of Jesus. He's heard that this Jesus could do incredible things. Out of all other options, and in his desperation, he he runs that 30 kilometers from Capernaum to Cana. You can imagine the, the adrenaline pushing him on uphill that whole night until he made it the next day. And so he comes to Jesus and he, 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 he begs him, come down, please, make my son well. But now look at Jesus' quite blunt response to him, verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And so Jesus replies to the man, but he replies in a way that he's kind of, he replies louder to kind of signal that, hey, I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking to everybody in the hearing of my, I'm talking to the town here. Because in in the original Greek, the you here is plural. So he's saying, you people, unless you people see signs and wonders, 
you will not believe. And so Jesus responds to this desperate father by using this situation to now speak broadly to the whole society and to point the finger at their hardness of hearts. Those who have taken him for granted. Those who are so familiar with Jesus that they, just, they, want, they want another thing to see, to be entertained and to be impressed by him. He does the same thing again, we'll see in a couple of weeks' time, when he feeds the 5,000. These people refuse to see signs as anything significant about Jesus. They just wanted the perks from the sign. That, hey, if Jesus could turn water into wine, how good's that? We get free wine. If Jesus could, could turn a little bit of bread into a whole lot of bread, how good's that? We get free bread. If Jesus could, could heal, then we could live forever. This is awesome. That was their logic. And so Jesus points out here that the demand for signs is really just exposing their self-centeredness. They liked Jesus for what he could give them. And they didn't have the hearts that would stop and consider where the sign was pointing to, who Jesus is. But perhaps like his his blunt comment to his mum last week, Jesus' words inject this man, this father, with with a renewed sense of faith. Because he comes back at Jesus, seemingly ignoring the fact that Jesus is making a bit of a cultural commentary here to, to, the broadly, to the broader society. And he asks even more strongly, verse 49, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And so he really wants Jesus to come. The problem is that he thinks Jesus needs to be there. And so instead, verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. And we're told the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And so instead of needing a sign to confirm it, instead of wanting Jesus to come to get something from him, we're told that this man now, in contrast to the, broad, the, the, the rest of the community, believed the word that Jesus spoke and he went on his way. Going on his way. We know what that means, given the distance. It means he spent eight hours heading downhill in the other direction. Eight hours thinking about his boy, who's at the point of death still. Eight hours, no medicine in hand. Eight hours, no instruction in his mind that Jesus gave him about what ritual to perform to perhaps potentially maybe see his son well. He just had four words, your son will live. Four words on repeat, in his brain for eight hours, overnight, we find out, overnight, till he made it home, on repeat, in this guy's head. And then he gets back to Capernaum, or on his way, just outside Capernaum. It says, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And so it turns out that when Jesus said, your son will live, it was one o'clock. The seventh hour is always taken from 6 a.m. One o'clock, the boy started to turn. One o'clock, death started to relent One o'clock, life started to take over this boy's body. His son did live. And the father's belief in those four words 
matured into a belief into who this Jesus must be. We're told a second time that this man now believed and his whole household believed. They saw that Jesus was doing things that only God can do. Jesus was speaking things that came with such authority and power that the man now saw through those words and through this healing what or who Jesus was. And so that's the story. What does this sign announce? Here's the big idea. Jesus is so powerful that His Word does His work. Jesus is so powerful that His Word does His work. The sign in this episode is not only that the boy was healed. The sign in this episode is that Jesus wasn't even there to see it. He simply spoke it. And from 30 kilometers away, what He spoke happened. This is why John is at pains to help us see the the reactions about Jesus. He brings up the Samaritans before this to tell us that they believed in Jesus' word. Jesus brings it up in front of the Galileans that they they need signs, not word. And then the Father, we're told, believed the word that Jesus spoke. Jesus' words matter. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the topic of words when we did our series in, in Proverbs. Uh, and in that sermon, I took us to the words of Jesus about words. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. He's telling us that our words come from who we really are. And our words come with the authority that we as a person have. When I was in high school, I noticed the, the, the combination of words and authority. Maybe you had the, a similar experience that if it was just a, a, a normal day with normal classes, with our normal usual teacher overseeing us, you know, the level of sanity in, in my classroom in high school, the obedience in the classroom, it was, it, was, it was neutral, it was vanilla, it was kind of, you know, there were some, some mischievous kids, there were mainly obedient kids. When the teacher spoke, spoke we, we listened, the lines were clear. But then you had those incredible days as a, as a teenage boy in, in high school when on, on a playground you heard that your teacher was away uh, and you knew that that day you were going to have a substitute teacher because you know when you hear that that it's going to be a great day today because you know that as you walk on into that classroom and you you look at that substitute teacher that the authority that this substitute teacher has is 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 non-existent sorry to all the crt teachers in the mix we'll pass to you later uh when you had a substitute teacher the, the, the classroom devolves into lord of the flies and it's, it's everyone for themselves. There are no adults who are in charge. The kids uh, are in charge. Because when a substitute teacher speaks, nothing happens. Such is their authority. And then you had, then you had the opposite exam, uh, experience sometimes, you know, where it was, it was the worst day ever. Because you, you had the setup. You had the same experience where you, where you arrived at school and you heard that your teacher was away. And you're there kind of you know, rubbing your hands together, licking your lips. This is going to be a great day today. And so then you get to your first class and you walk on into the class, bouncing into the classroom, looking up to the front to see who would be your next victim, who is the next substitute teacher, who you guys are going to make fun of today, who you're going to have the time of, the life, of your life at their expense, and you see the vice principal. <laughs> and it's not a substitute teacher, it's, it's the vice principal who's looking after the class this time. And, and when a vice principal speaks... You know, it's like moral revival is broken out. Like, you know, Billy Graham is leading the class today and everyone's flocking to the front, repenting of, of everything. You know, 
their authority. Their words came with such authority because everybody knew without saying it the, the position that they carried, the, the authority that they carried. And so when they spoke, everybody listened all of the time. Someone's authority makes their word authoritative. And this episode tells us that when Jesus speaks, everything listens. And I mean everything in the universe listens when Jesus speaks because absolutely everything in the universe is under his authority. We see it throughout his life. In this case, sickness. In other cases, nature. Even death submits to the word of Jesus. Jesus has that authority. Jesus has that power because he is God in the flesh. Jesus is God. Now that is an incredibly significant reality. Not just historically, back then, but it's an incredibly significant reality for your life and for my life today. God has entered our world. God himself has entered our world in Jesus. And so there are two, at least two things that I want us to think about applying to our lives based on this reality that Jesus is so powerful that his word does his work. Number one, know this, Jesus knows what you need and can provide it. Jesus knows what you need and can provide it. There are a, co- a couple of things going on in this story. I tried, tried to bring them up as we unpacked it. Multiple layers here. There's the pressing issue. A father loving his son so much that he, he, in desperation, travels out to try to find him healing. He wants his son to be made well. But the wider issue is that this town here needs Jesus to prove himself through a sign. And so this story brings up this blend of our humanity and also our hard-heartedness. And notice what Jesus does in the midst of that that blend, that, that complex mix of our human experience. He rebukes the town, yes, but he still heals the boy. In other words, even while we're hard-hearted, Jesus listens. Even while our faith might be compromised, even while our thoughts of him might haven't yet matured, Jesus generously gives and gener- generously provides. Yesterday, I was, I was doing the dishes, uh, and doing the dishes for me is prime Netflix documentary time. It makes the dishes go incredibly slow, but at least there's some entertainment. And so I pulled out my phone, and I, and I stumbled upon this, this, this new documentary that just came up uh, in the recommendations, Escaping Twin Flames, it was called. And it's about a couple who started this thing called the Twin Flames Universe, which uh, claimed to be able to help hapless romantics you know, find their true love, their twin flame. And it was this blend of kind of mysticism and spirituality, this kind of cult-like dynamic, where they were selling their wares, selling their advice, selling this community out through YouTube and other means uh, into the world. And that dynamic of that sales pitch attracted, obviously, the the kind of people who would be vulnerable to that kind of message, desperate people who would then fawn at the feet of these leaders, this manipulative couple, and it led to coercion, it leads to families ultimately breaking up, very cult-like behavior as these people are chasing, they'll do whatever they can to find their twin flame. And I was struck as I watched that just by uh, how everyone who is vulnerable to that, that kind of thing uh, really is coming to these spiritual leaders, not for the leaders themselves, but because they want something from them. And likewise, these, these cult leaders want people to come to them because, because they want something from them. 
People are used and manipulated when, when the carrot is dangled in front of them. When we have a carrot that we so want that we'll do anything we can to get it. Now, this is the, the kindness of Jesus' rebuke to the town about their fascination with signs. Because if you and me had the kind of power that Jesus has, we'd be thinking about how to monetize that thing. We'd be thinking about how can we use this power to, to gain more political clout and influence. But by, telling, by Jesus up front telling this town, hey, you only want a sign from me, Jesus is doing the opposite of a cult leader. He's wanting people to see that they're already too committed or too driven by their wants and their desires. They're, they're too besotted with the extraordinary. Their hearts are already captured by something else. And so Jesus is, in fact, saying that he doesn't want these people using him, and he doesn't want to use them. He wants a genuine relationship where people are following Jesus for Jesus' sake. And Jesus reveals to us that he loves us too much to be indifferent to our addictions, to our commitments, to other things. And so he calls it out. And so Jesus is showing incredible generosity to this man. Because this man doesn't even know who he's talking to when he asks him to come and, and heal his son. Jesus is so full of mercy and grace that his generosity isn't contingent on this man's purity, not contingent on this man's maturity. His love isn't contingent on his, his performance. No, Jesus simply is merciful and gracious and kind. And so in the same story that Jesus is showing his power and how infinite it is, Jesus is also showing his grace, how unconditional it is. A lot of our world is still working out who Jesus is. And while the 8 billion people in our world are working out who this Jesus is and have kind of some correct thoughts and some half correct thoughts and some very false thoughts about him, he's making the world turn around. Jesus is holding the universe in his hand, sovereign Lord of it all. And he's holding the people who are still confused by him, don't yet know him, maybe outright rejecting him. Even thinking internally to, to the church, the, the, the modern day church around the world, so much of the church is, is besotted by signs and wonders. And yet Jesus in his grace listens, gives gifts to his church, empowers his church, dies for his bride. A lot of us, we, we come to God mainly because we might want other things from him. A comfier life, a stronger purpose, a neater romantic life. We come with mixed motives. And yet Jesus knows all of our mixed motives and still has mercy for us. Still has grace for us. He's still generous toward us. You might be here and you're still working out who Jesus is. Well, his healing and his power and his generosity isn't something that, that is on the other side of you figuring that all out. Jesus wants to be kind and generous and gracious and merciful to you right now. And so in our own lives, that means we can come to God and ask. We can ask Him for healing. We can ask Him to provide. We can ask Him for what we think we need. And Jesus is going to be generous to provide what He knows that we do need. And my hope is that by realizing that, by seeing the, the generosity of Jesus 
in this story. Like the father in the story, our half-hearted belief might progress into full commitment. Because the man approached Jesus with a need, then the man believed Jesus' words, but when he saw the power of Jesus' words come to bear, particularly kind of did the math in his head, one o'clock at the very time that Jesus said it, it happened, then the man truly committed. And so look around your own life and see God's goodness to you. 2,000 years ago, before you could comprehend it, before you had intellectually done all the kind of the work to think about who he was. 2,000 years ago, God took on flesh and dwelt among us in this universe that he was holding up at the time that he came. And he lived a perfect life in our place. And then he died a, a gruesome death as our substitute. The most important thing in your life that needs to happen, Jesus has already done it for you in living, dying, and rising again. And he did it before our hearts were thankful for it. He did it before our minds had comprehended. He did it, particularly our generation, long before we were even around to know it was a thing that had happened in history. And Jesus did it for you. The Apostle Paul says in Romans that if God could give up his own son, how much more will he be kind and and gracious to give us all that we need? His love for you is certain. His love for you is secure because it's not dependent on you. And so you can trust Him. You can entrust yourself to Him. And so that's the first takeaway. Jesus knows what you need and can provide it. Number two, as we finish, what we learn from this story is, is we can take Jesus at His word. We can take Jesus at His word. You notice as you, as you read the story, particularly in contrast to the story that came before it about the Samaritans, that, that John, the author here, is, is wording it in a way where he's trying to emphasize the word of Jesus. And what led the father in the story down the path toward full commitment to trust in Jesus was seeing the power of Jesus' word, what he said. And it shows us that by the word of Jesus, there is more than one miracle going on in this story. Yes, the boy was healed, praise God, but the father was too. Jesus' word changed his heart. And Jesus' word has the power to change our hearts, just like His. And so think today about the words that Jesus speaks to us. Elsewhere in the, in the book of Romans, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, without the word of God, we would not know how to interpret the predicament that we find ourselves in, with, with brokenness, with suffering, with evil in the world, and it pouring out of our own hearts. Well, Jesus tells us, you've sinned, you've fallen short of the glory of God. Elsewhere it tells us that the wages of sin is death. (laughs) Not everything is a sign. (laughs) Jesus tells us the, the wages of sin is death. And so apart from the Word of God, we wouldn't know the consequences of that brokenness, that suffering, that evil, that sin. Yet Jesus tells us. But then Jesus, as he is hanging on the cross, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That apart from the word of Jesus, we wouldn't know the outrageous, outlandish, ridiculous character that Jesus has to even while he is being crucified, he might forgive those who are crucifying him. He says, come to me, 
all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That apart from the word of Jesus, we wouldn't know the invitation that goes out from God to the world, the one that we've sinned against to the world that has sinned against him. Come, come, Jesus says. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, Jesus said throughout his ministry. That apart from the word of Jesus, we wouldn't know the faithfulness of God to those who would come to him. That there is security. There is a forever, never giving up love between Jesus and those he calls his own. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That apart from the words of Jesus, we would never know the love and the persevering love of God for his people. Take heart, Jesus says. I have overcome the world. Apart from the word of Jesus, we would never know that our future is secure, that our future is safe, that we are traveling toward kind of an, an, an upward trajectory forever when he finally deals with this suffering, this brokenness, this sin. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Apart from the words of Jesus, we would never know that right now you can live in that freedom. You can live experiencing the joy and the release of the consequences of the sin that has kept you falling short of the glory of God, well, Jesus tells us. And so we could go on and on and on. But the words of Jesus that he spoke in his life and the word of Jesus that is written across all of the Bible are the word of Jesus to us today. The word of Jesus that, like this Father, we get to respond to today, that we get to hear today. And the question is, will we truly hear today? Will we take heed of the word of Jesus? Will we obey the word of Jesus? Will we find the comfort, the encouragement, the empowerment, the freedom that exists in the word of Jesus today? Will we hear this word with the authority from whom it comes? Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, Deuteronomy says. And so all of us today have this opportunity, like this Father, to, to listen to the word of Jesus and to take heed of it. They are an invitation to you. If you're not a Christian right now, the words of Jesus to you are an invitation to believe in him. Not only that he exists, but that he came to earth for you. Seeing your predicament stuck in sin, living a perfect life in its place, dying for that sin and then rising again in victory, that invitation goes out to you. Come, Jesus says, come to me. And if you're already a Christian today, then this episode highlights to us once again the power of his words, that we need to heed them, we need to follow them, we need to walk in them, yet we also need to be pastored by them experience the comfort and the counsel of the word of Jesus to us. Jesus is so powerful that his word does his work. And so let him work in you today by taking heed of his word. His word can change us. His word can keep us. His word can empower us. So let's keep on trusting Jesus and keep on walking and living for him. I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this sign. We thank you for this sign that, that is held up to the world uh, about your power, 
about your godness, your divinity, and about your love and your grace. God, we come to you as half-hearted creatures, fooling about with all sorts of things in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. And yet, Lord, you listen to us. You hear us. You respond or even have already responded before we speak in mercy, in generosity, in grace. God, we repent for being half-hearted. We repent for not loving you with our whole hearts, souls, minds, and strength. Lord, I pray that the, the power of your words displayed in this story that had that, that boy recover from death. Lord, I pray that that same power would be at work in us today, that we might believe in you. Help our unbelief. May we trust you. Lord, help our compromised trust. Give us hearts that are, are blazing with passion for you. Lord, heal our half-heartedness. So, Lord, come and for those who are just considering you and this is one of the first things I've ever read about you, Lord, may they consider through this story, not just to be impressed by you, Lord, but to have impressed on their hearts your power, your authority, the claim that you have over each of our lives. Lord, may we come to you in trust today. And so fill us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Encourage us and empower us by your word today. Uh, and help us uh, gather together in, in, in song now. Give, give you the, the worship and the glory that you deserve for that power and for this incredible display of mercy for us. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.